Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 188 of the Mandolins and Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. Also brought to you in part by Acoustic Disc, where they did it again. They released another brand new reissue with four bonus tracks. This month, Josh Pinkham and Jerry Tomlinson's Slapback, which has been one of my favorite albums for a lot of years. I probably listen to that album a couple times a year. Josh is an incredible player, uh, and he's been, I saw him with Kittle & Co. not too long ago with Mr. Sun, and yeah, it's incredible. So go over to Acoustic Disc, pick that up. Be sure to listen as well to the Acoustic Encounters podcast with Dog and Danny Barnes. How's everybody doing? I am in the sweltering Charleston, South Carolina, where they're expecting it to be 105 feels like that's what they call it. It feels like 105. It'll only be in the 90s. I think we can eliminate the uh, the in between. Let's just say if it's going to be feeling like 105, let's just say it's 105 because that's what it's going to feel like when I go outside. Anyway, it's hot here. Hope everybody is doing well. It seems like it's probably a little hot everywhere. Um Coming up really quick, I just got my plane tickets for the Green Mountain Bluegrass Fest. I'm actually wearing the shirt right now. I'm so excited to be emceeing again this year. It's a blast. The lineup is so incredible. I actually have, I don't think I can announce it yet, but I have the, uh, the lineup and the times and all that stuff. And it's just going to be incredible time. So looking forward to that. Also looking forward to just found out it could be opening up for the Poe Ramblin' Boys here in Charleston, South Carolina in October. So that'll be a blast. I don't know if you've ever seen the Poe Ramblin' Boys live, but I highly recommend it. I saw them at IBMA, was it last year, two years ago? Wow. The, they put on a show, and it's, uh, yeah, they're great stuff. So looking forward to seeing CJ and company in Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah, so let's get into the uh, let's get into the sponsors here real quick. First off, it should be any day now here. I'm at Siminoff Books website and they are still taking orders for the life and work of Lloyd Lore. That should be coming out though here in July. There's a ton of great books there as well as straight up strings. You can get 10% off everything you get there. I'm not sure if that includes the Lloyd Lore book or not though, but the book's going to be worth it anyway. So, head over there to Siminoff Books dot com or straightupstrings.com and get yourself some strings pre-order that book get yourself a book on how to build a mandolin and get yourself 10 percent off by using the promo code all caps mando beer again not sure if it works on the lloyd lore books that's brand new but try it only one way to find out peghead nation with Peghead Nation streaming video courses and mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass, you learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in roots music PegheadNation.com features a great lineup of mandolin instructors like Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Feibish, Chad Manning, and Ian Corey. Everything from advanced to the beginner. They got it all. The courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. The best part is you can join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now Get your first month for free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout. Northfield Mandolins. If you follow Northfield on Instagram or any of the social media, you'll know that they've just released that brand new lineup of instruments that looks incredible. If you're at Gray Fox this weekend, they've got the instruments there. Northfield Mandolins, let's build 
more than a mandolin together check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com or download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings demonstrations and special workshops ear trumpet labs hand-built microphones in portland oregon their mics are beautifully designed they have great feedback rejection for live use and the most natural tone you'll find for acoustic instruments check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com today ellis mandolins handcrafted mandolins designed and built in austin texas over and check out ellis mandolins be sure to follow tom ellis too man incredible photographer tone slabs man every time i check out my uh, feeds it looks like some more and more players are getting those tone slabs i am loving the darth tone and uh i've been playing it ever since i've got the current one that i have now with the mandolins beer logo on it uh i haven't put it down they have all the shapes and sizes that you would want to use so head over to toneslabs.com right now and get yourself a slab of tone in elderly instruments elderly is your trusted source for new used and vintage fretted and stringed instruments for the experienced beginner player their vast selection of mandolins guitars banjos ukuleles and did i say mandolins includes all of the accessories and books to go with them all instruments are inspected and set up for easy playability and they're down to earth and knowledgeable staff are there to help they're in their 51st year and they're family owned and operated they ship worldwide you can visit them anytime at elderly.com all right this week's episode is with Danny Roberts. Danny is a super nice guy. I um, got to talk with him at IBMA last year for a little bit in the lobby at the hotel. And man, just just so nice. And and along with being an incredible player with a history of great music under his belt, he's also an incredible luthier and um, setup guy. So it was really fun to talk to him about all the different aspects of the podcast, kind of a mashup of all the guests in a way. So so anyway, we'll get into this episode here with Danny Roberts. I just want to thank you all for listening. And uh, yeah, hope you guys have yourselves a fantastic weekend. Stay cool, everybody. Cheers. All right. Well, man, it's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Danny Roberts. Danny, how's it going? Oh, it's going great. It's great to be here with you. Man, I appreciate you taking the time. You are uh, one busy person. <laughs> you you <laughs> yeah, are working hard. I tend to stay that way. <laughs> yeah, that's great. You just, um, you just did a gig, was it just this past weekend with like four of the original Graskill members? We did. Yes, we had... Uh, of course, you know, we have three originals back. Jamie Johnson came back full-time at the beginning of this year. And um, so three of the originals are back full-time. Of course, myself and Terry Smith have always been here through the whole thing. And uh, this past weekend, unfortunately, John Bryan, our guitar player singer on his way here, had a car wreck and totaled his car. Whoa. And uh, But he's fine. Everything was good, but he wasn't able to make it. And Terry Eldridge was here in town. So Terry's our standby guy now. He fills in for 
whoever's needed. He is, uh, he's our bass man or our acoustic man. And, um, of course singer and stuff. And we've actually got some things going next year's the 20th anniversary of the Graskels. And, uh, um, he's going to be doing some dates along with all of us, you know, kind of just, uh, bringing back some of the nostalgia of the old days with him and, and everything. It's just great that they're all doing well. And, uh, it's good to be able to have them back, back in the fold again and doing some stuff with the Graskels. Yeah, that's excellent. It's great that you guys still have a good relationship. You know, music can always be the music business and in some circles can always <laughs> be uh, the breaker of friendships or the um, bonding of friendship. But this is true. You know, great. You have relationships still. Yeah, never, never, ever was there a problem with that. You know, it's it's kind of like when we put the band together, Eldridge was always one. It's like, once you're a Graskel, you're always Graskel, dude. You know, <laughs> and it's kind of, you know, everybody... Anybody that's came, uh, been in this band and gone to other bands, we're still great friends with everybody from, you know, from our first banjo player to the, you know, fiddle players that have moved on to different things, everybody, um, you know, no, there's no issues with that. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it life's too short for that kind of stuff for me. Yeah, I hear you there. Oh, and also, it seems like, I mean, I got to talk with you at IBMA last year for a little bit, and you're a super friendly guy, and that, I think, goes a long way in everything in this business. Well, I think, I, I think I've always found out a long time ago that, uh, you know, if you're, if you're friendly and to people, then most people are going to be friendly back to you, you know. It's like it, the world basically is a, a mirror to what we are. If you go around, you know, and you're kind of – uh, not nice. It seems that that can be returned, you know? So I just, <laughs> I just try to try to do treat everybody the way I want to be treated. I mean, you know, as the old cliche goes, but it, it seems to work that way if you'll do that. Well, we have so much, to, you are such a well-rounded uh, person in the mandolin world. We have uh, so much to, to talk about. I want to dive in first off your <laughs> incredible mandolin player. Um, and uh, let's, let's start there. I was watching some videos of you, and you were talking about the first mandolin contest you entered. You were actually there as a fiddle player. <laughs> well, I was actually there as a guitar player. Guitar player. <laughs> uh, my first my first instrument was guitar. I started playing guitar with um, fiddle players, backing them up. I came from Litchfield, Kentucky, and there's just uh, uh, well, it is the capital, fiddling capital of Kentucky. They call it now. There's all these fiddle players that have come out of there, and um, I ended up playing guitar with all of them. And so I was playing the fiddle rhythm, going to get going to the fiddle contest, backing them up, started flat picking. And of course, just being around those fiddlers, I started learning fiddle tunes. And I was so far behind all of them, I just never felt confident enough to try to get involved. I'd enter some beginner fiddle contests and things, but was flat picking the guitar all the time. And I was doing well in, uh, in guitar competitions and stuff. And just happened, I was probably about, I don't know, 17 i was at a contest and somebody asked me did i realize that a mandolin and fiddle were tuned the same i said no i've never you know i never messed with a mandolin and so i got to thinking i flat pick if it's tuned i should be able to play those fiddle tunes that i know <clears throat> so i went and <clears throat> excuse me and borrowed a, a mandolin from a guy and i was like hey i can play these tunes got in the contest that day and got first place i love this little <laughs> instrument <laughs> so yeah that was my first experience with mandolin and it was good <laughs> yeah. do you remember what do you remember what tune uh what tunes you played or any of the tunes that you played that day it, it was one of those things where you played one tune and it was uh i played uh, uh whiskey before breakfast oh nice <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, so I remember it well. And you've won seven Spigma Awards for the Mandolin Player of the Year as well. Right. Yeah, I've been been blessed to do that. We're, uh, you know, it's um, it's always great to be able to get recognized for for your picking, you know. And one thing for me is just I just love it. I just I have fun with it. And I think, uh, you know, hopefully people see that when they definitely when they see me live and hopefully they can hear it when they hear it on a recording. I'm, I'm having a good time, whether it's live or in the studio. I, I just enjoy getting to pick. When you started then playing mandolin and you won the contest, I should say, when you won the contest, did you then suddenly you were like, I have to buy a mandolin. I have to I want to dedicate my playing to mandolin or just still stick to guitar at that point. Actually, I still stuck with guitar. I was, you know, I was wanted to be Tony Rice, you know, flat picking. And I had a lot of people that I looked up to in in competitions that nobody will ever see or ever heard of. But I saw them every weekend when I was a kid growing up and they were like heroes to me. Great pickers, great musicians. And I, you know, and I thought, man, I just want to be able to pick like that. And then somewhere shortly after that, we started a bluegrass band for the competitions called the new tradition well, i'm gonna be there when the roll is called in heaven i'm gonna kneel at my savior's feet i'm gonna sing him praise and shout the victory my savior's face i just can't wait to see i'm gonna be a rock be a foundation rock of a mansion for me and uh, that's that's how I ended up in New Tradition. We left contests and started playing professionally after that. But when we started it, me and my best friend, Fred Duggan, that played competitions together and stuff all the time, guitars, when we started the band, he looked at me and he said, well, I guess uh, you're going to be the mandolin player? And I was <laughs> like, um, oh, well, I guess I can. But And so that's after that's when I actually got a mandolin. I just borrowed mandolins everywhere I went. After that, and um, and actually won about as many or more mandolin competitions as I did guitar competitions. I didn't own one. Wow! And um, yeah, it was a one one good friend of mine, Jim Wood, uh, fellow that lives down down here in Tennessee. He had a a Gilchrist mandolin that I borrowed from him a lot, and uh, and and I won a lot of contests with that mandolin and placed in a lot of them, and and it was a good one to play, you know. And and Deanie Richardson had a little A style. I think it was a Aria Pro 2, and I, I used that one in several competitions and stuff. So, And then when I finally got to deciding I was going to be in a band, I, my first mandolin was a Aria Pro 2, a little F-style. That's what I played for a little bit, and then I got a little Gibson F5. And then from there, I could never tell you how many mandolins I've had. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think it was that that – um, led to you. I mean, again, you, you're you're just going to these competitions and borrowing mandolins and then winning them. I mean, what was it about the playing you think that that led to you just sounding different than the other people? I don't want to say better because you know I don't want to downplay the other no. players, but you know, oh, no, obviously, no. something stood out about your playing. I I think I definitely the style that I played on guitar went to mandolin. You know, it was like when I I play like if I played whiskey before breakfast or Gray Eagle or something like that on the mandolin, I didn't sit it down and listen to. I mean, I sat and listened to the fiddle player or somebody else's version, but I never one time ever tried to learn anything note for note the way somebody else did it. I listened to it. I'd get licks. I'd get ideas, and then I 
took my own take on it and I would play it. And, um, you know, I always wanted to be, I always wanted to be different. There was a guitar player, he is a guitar player named Roy Curry from Chattanooga. He's, I think he's like four time, uh, flat picking Winfield, you know, a flat picking champion. And I grew up watching him and he was that way. It was like, he played those fiddle tunes, but he played them in his way. He didn't play them like the fiddle did you know he played around the melodies and did improvised and i that was my style on guitar and on mandolin and i when i took that to the mandolin and i was always quick i could play from the get-go it seemed like i could really put a lot of speed you know and so in competitions if you can uh, if you can dazzle them with speed and uh, some fancy licks you can usually do pretty good so <laughs> that was one of the things that i had right off the bat with that you know and that's one of the things i had to work on actually getting into a band is uh, backing that off you know when you we all came out of contests and started playing at bluegrass festivals in this in new tradition you know and it was like each one of us every time we took a solo it was like you know we're going to play every note we can and try to get flashes we can in every solo and then when we started playing festivals and i started watching guys like doyle lawson and and bluegrass cardinals and all these different people it's like you know these guys aren't doing that they're they're putting together a piece of a puzzle they're putting together a puzzle and making one picture they're not trying to have all these pieces sticking out and that's when we we started trying to develop and work back into, you know, let's make this a song that's coherent instead of just a song that's got a bunch of people going different directions. Man, that's that's pretty uh, great thinking and a good thing to learn early in a career. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. It really is. It's and it's it's hard to learn. It's a hard thing to get out of. You know, it's. Uh, I'm going to be 60 years old this year. And sometimes I have to tell myself, calm down, man, just <laughs> relax and don't play so much. You know, it's like, I, that's one of the things if, if, you know, if you're feeling excited or something for me, I, I can still, boy, I, if I'm not careful, I'll, I'll overplay, you know? And it's like, I didn't need to do all of that, but I had fun doing it. <laughs> you, <laughs> <Right. you know>? <laughs> so. <laughs> How do you approach that going into the studio then? Like for, for a song for people who might, I mean, I, I could always use that advice as well. You know, it's so easy to overplay and you want to show off when you have your chance. But if you go into the studio and maybe you're doing a session for somebody or it's just the Graskels or how do you approach listening to a song and what you're going to do for it? Well, one of the things I do is, is try to listen to the melody. Um, and I don't, I actually don't, like even with the Graskels, I don't get the material and sit and learn stuff before I go in the studio. Now, I'll listen to it, maybe have some ideas, but I don't sit down and work on it. I like this, this to be spontaneous, to go in and have that, you know, spark of something fresh um, off of it when you play it. Um, a lot of the times, uh, solos that I play that are on our records are the ones that, you, that I play on the, you know, the, the track as it goes down. They're not overdubs. And a lot of them are, but a lot of the times it's like, man, I like what I did right there, the feel of that, and and I leave it alone. But I try to listen to the melody of the song, and in there, keep the melody 
going along as much as possible with, you know, whatever you feel to, um, feel like playing to fill in around the melodies. Um, you know, there's times some songs depending, I think it depends on the person I'll hear a song and it just feels like that needs some Monroe type feel in it. So, you know, I'm throw some of that in there. Um, it's just kind of, I, I'm real, I'm real big on how feel how something feels and um you know i was in the studio when i was really young new tradition did a a session uh and we brought jerry douglas in to play we did an all gospel um instrumental record for brentwood music and jerry came in and played dobro and 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 it was just it was so eye-opening he sat down in there and, and he started playing it was like they uh he played a solo and and they'd say uh he wouldn't even listen back. He'd say, let's grab it again. Wouldn't listen back. And Edgar Meyer was standing there, and I looked at Edgar, and he played this solo, and I said, ah, he'll want to do that one again. I heard this little, almost like a little note flub, and Edgar looked at me and said, I bet he keeps this one. And he said, move on. And I looked at Edgar, and I said, now, how did you know? And why did he And Edgar said, it felt good. He said it was just it was just in the pocket. He felt it. He felt it when it went down. And I, I learned that. I felt like that really taught me something early on is it's not all about, is it exactly perfect? Is it, it's, does it have the right feel for the song that you just played? And that's, I think that's a hard thing to learn sometimes, you know, because you go in the studio and, and first thing you think is this needs to be perfect. Everything needs to sound, you know, just, I want every note to be perfect every note to be laid down when an actually if you listen to some of your favorite people and you break down what they're doing, um, it's not perfect. It's just right. <laughs> you know, it just fits perfectly for what they played. You know, um, my, my favorite, I mean, there's so many great players, but my favorite will always be Sam Bush. And he's just always, his plans always spoken to me and he is by in no way, everything is perfect. His, he's a feel guy and he just lays it down. He plays from his heart and just lays it out there. You hear it in everything he does. And I just think you're a lot better if you can, if you can get some of your heart into your playing and instead of it just being notes. I also love like the feel thing. And that seems to be the things, those things that grab me when listening to say like XM radio, you know, there's so many great new bands out there, but at some point in any genre, they start to like sound a little bit the same and you can kind of oh, tell, yes. you know, you can kind of tell the ones, the ones that always seem to grab me are the ones when I listen to and then go back and do some research. I'm like, Oh, they've, they've gone back and done their homework. They aren't just influenced by, you know, mm-hmm. this band that just came out, yeah. you know, five years ago or whatever. They're influenced by all sorts of old school bands. And I think that makes a huge difference. Oh, it, it definitely does. I mean, the more, influences you can bring in the more stuff you listen to in your head even if you don't sit and like if you don't sit down and try to learn note for note what bill monroe did or what jesse did or what sam's done or any of those guys but if you listen to it live with it in your head and hear that music when you're playing that stuff will come out and it's 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 just it, it will happen and it's um you know you can listening to music sometimes it's just as important as playing because when you're playing, you're, you're like, you, I feel like you cut out some of it. You're like, I'm trying to get this. Oh, I can't do that. But if you're just listening and letting your head learn this and hear those notes, 
then it's when you're playing your interpretation of what you heard can come out and that's when you can start developing your sound instead of you sounding like somebody else and um, that's I've, I've said that so many times to uh, in workshops and stuff and have a lot of younger people I do a lot of teaching to um, with younger guys and stuff and it's like look you could sit down and, and learn a solo exactly the way Sam plays it or exactly not, not Sam nobody can do that but exactly the way <laughs> Adam Steffi or Alan Bobby or myself, or whatever. And that's fine. It, and it'll be great. You can learn it note for note, play it like that, but it's not you. I said, sit down and listen to all these guys. See if you like a lick or what, steal it out, but then make your version of that, play it the way you feel it instead of being, you know, trying to be somebody else, be yourself. And I think that's what can help you separate out from the pack a little bit. I just saw a great quote from someone who had, got to meet Tony Rice and, and play, you know, his guitar. He played all his Tony Rice licks and Tony Rice was like, wow, you, yeah, you sound a lot like me. You should try to sound, <laughs> you, you should try to sound like you. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, it's, I, I mean, it's great to have somebody that it's cool to hear, uh, you know, somebody play licks and stuff. And, you know, I've, when I was talking about the contest again, I used to judge some contests in later years and stuff. And, I would hear a guy get up and he might play Mark O'Connor's version of Dixie Breakdown when he won the national championship. Note for note, which was amazing. But he had sat down and either with Tab or with a slow downer and learned every note that way. And then you have another guy got up and play his own version of something else. And even if that guy didn't maybe play quite as um complicated or something like that but if his uh you know his ability was pretty much on the same level i would give him the nod over the guy that had learned somebody else's stuff no for no this guy was playing his stuff this guy was playing somebody else's stuff and it just uh, it i just think you're much better off if you can pull your own self into your music instead of being somebody else when did you start uh, touring professionally oh uh, let's see Probably 20, when I was about 22, something like that, that's uh, left the contests. We had started that band, New Tradition, in the contests. And uh, then we decided to take it out and, and start playing festivals. And we we started playing festivals. And we, we were playing at the Spigma Contest. And we're there, and I forget what year it is that we won that competition. And um, while we were there in the hallway jamming, this guy came up to us from a record label. It was Brentwood Music here in Nashville. And uh, they asked if, you know, they had never done a bluegrass and they wanted to do bluegrass with us. So we uh, signed a record deal with them right off. They were great, which opened up the world into a, a gospel world. A lot of, you know, being they were a gospel label, but. We did a lot of bluegrass stuff, but it was gospel too. So we ended up, we, I mean, the, many of the early years of New Tradition, we we played 200, 250 days, playing days a year. And, um, but, you know, we play festivals, but we we sang in lots and lots of churches. Sometimes we do four churches in a week, you know, and then head to a festival and that kind of thing. So. We were just on the road all the time. Uh, so that's pretty much all I've known, being on the road. And then during all that back in, 
you know, in the uh, 80s, when that started, I actually um, went to work with Gibson Guitar Company, worked there for about six years and played and, and did that. And then it got so busy playing, I left Gibson and just played then solid for 10 or 11 years. And then when New Tradition ended, I actually uh, went back to Gibson and worked there another uh, just 17 or 18 years or something, over 20 years total um, when I left Gibson this last time. And so during all the heavy times with the Grascals and stuff, I was still with Gibson. I was juggling both. Coupled it like when we were with Dolly, one time I had to take a a four-month, I think it was four-month leave of absence from Gibson. And so if I came in off the road, I'd run in there and you know, for a few hours here and there and hang out. But for the most part, I was gone for about, I think it was a four month time leave of absence. And so I juggled Gibson and the Grascals all those years until I left the Grascals. Um, uh, I mean, left Gibson about seven years ago. So. Wow. I, I, I would imagine if you go into Gibson and say, I need a leave of absence to tour with Dolly Parton, I would imagine they would be like, okay. <laughs> yeah. They, of course, they, all the years I was there, they were so good to me anyway, I, to let me come and go. And I, I mean, I was, I did everything from, you know, I was, uh, when I went back to Gibson, I ended up over the Mandolin division. And uh, then I, uh, there at Opry Mills, it was over the Mandolin division. And then I was over the, the whole plant there as a uh, uh, plant supervisor. And uh, until that went away and then I went back into repair. It's like the last seven or eight years I was at Gibson, I was in repair. But, um, you know, they knew even the, whatever job I was doing at Gibson, when I was on the road, I was always a representative for Gibson. So I did, I did a lot of artist relations for Gibson, uh, especially for about six or eight years there when Charlie Darrington was over everything. And he, um, you know, he was always had me going and he said, he told me, he said, I want everybody playing our stuff, man. And just so, you know, so I was doing, doing that thing, coming back, doing that, working on the road. So I was, even when I wasn't at Gibson, I was still representing Gibson always. So it was, it was a good, good time. They were good to me and it was good for me too. Well, it, it's always really cool to me to see on the classified ads when a, a used Gibson comes up and there's two names that usually on the label, they are usually prominently placed in the display ad because it means it's a good mandolin and it's you and Charlie Darrington signed, which is, I would imagine that's got to feel pretty good. It does. It's, you know, and it's so funny. I never thought anything about that when I was there, you know, Charlie, um, Charlie was one of my best friends from, I met him at the contest. He was in a, a bluegrass band called cross country. That was he and Mike Snyder had, and, and they were just, the hot stuff, you know, they didn't play a lot of them, but when they did, they were tough. And so that's when I saw them and, uh, I knew him from there. And so the first time I went to Gibson in the eighties, Charlie was the one that got me on there. And then after I left and came back then again, after new tradition ended, I, Charlie was there and I went back to work with Charlie. So he was always, you know, a best friend, a, a mentor and, and, repair and instrument building in so many ways you know i i was with him every day and until you know every day until he uh, died on that motorcycle and it's just now going look back there's two mandolins that um that he and i both signed the labels on i own one of them and a guy i think virginia has the other and it's like those two are extra special to me 
And I, I look back now and I, I look at those, those labels we signed all the time we were there together. I signed the ferns, the, the artist models, everything that way. He signed the master models. And then the couple of years after he was gone, I signed everything until I left. And it's like, now I look back at it the, all these years past and I think, man, God blessed me so much to be able to get to do that, you know, and, and, and then now to be able to have my own business with, you know, just off the bench thing it has worked out so great. And that means so much to this, you know, it, people, you know, they, well, he signed my mandolin and I want, I want to send it to him to have him do my ref, uh, refret or do whatever, which I hear that on a weekly basis. So. You worked on Harry Clark's Gilchrist, I believe. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. I did. I um I, I talk with Harry often, and um the two most excited times I think I've heard him were when he got his Gilchrist, and then when you set up his Gilchrist. <laughs> it's a great mandolin, and, and I mean when uh, when it left here, that thing was it was playing so great, and he had, he had just had you know it just had some issues. That's one of the things I think that helps a lot for me is. I set them up the way when a mandolin leaves my bench, unless somebody says, I want this or this, it's going to be set up the way I'd take it and walk on stage with it and be happy with it. And it's like, I play, I don't want to fight an instrument. I want it to, I want to be able to relax and it play well, you know? And, and so that was, he was very happy when he left here and it, it, I, that's one of my favorite things is, is hearing people, you know, talk about, man, this mandolin just, I love this mantle, but then when you got done with it, it's just so much better. It feels so much better. You know, it, it, it makes a big difference in how something feels. If it feels good, it sounds better too. <laughs> Whether it sounds it better or not, it sounds better to your ear if it's feeling good to your hands. It's a, it's a big thing. What kind of setup do you like when you play? Uh, you said you don't like to fight it, but is there like a particular kind of thing you're looking for, you know, when you, you, you set it up? I do. I mean, I, I like the nut. I like I like the action at the nut pretty much as well, not pretty much as low as you can possibly get it without buzz. In fact, I, I mean, if you hit it too hard, it'll buzz at the first fret. You know, if, if you're nailing it too hard without it cranked up, you know, I have a number that I go by at, at the 12th fret with everything. I start at that and it's like it, it's somewhere around uh, it, it's around two and a half to 30 seconds on the bass side and around two, uh, 30 seconds on the treble side. I kind of start with that number. Then I play the mandolin and it's like, all right, it's every mandolin has its own. Uh, it's how much the top moves. It's the, it depends on the angle of the head angle. It, every mandolin will have a different, um, feel as far as string tension, as far as, um, you know, when you hit the, String tension's a big thing, and it's like some mandolin set at that action. It's like, man, that thing still feels high. And then I start going away from the numbers, and I do it by feel and by hand until it feels good. Sometimes I set them at that, and it's like, wow, this is too low, and I start to raise it a little bit. One of the things that I have found out, you know, it's always been like, crank that action up on that thing, and you can just hammer it, and it sounds better. Well, you crank the action, you can raise the action, above the sweet spot i mean that if you get it above a certain place it it just almost the instrument almost feels like it's fighting with itself it's just everything's battling and you back it down and get it that sweet spot yeah 
you can crank it up like that and hit it as hard as you can and it won't you won't hear a buzz on the fret but you know what that doesn't mean you're getting the best sound out of it the best sound is when it is set at a perfect thing and you can hit it at a normal uh with a normal pick uh chop or a, a single pick thing and it be clear round pretty tone have the the tone in there instead of just having a big noise <laughs> sometimes <laughs> sometimes it's almost like just a big noise and if you get it set up right and and play it it, it just makes such a difference a mandolin can be such a beautiful sounding instrument or they can kind of be a little ugh, you know it's it just depends on uh, of course the player but the setup and one of the things i found out too is a lot of people I've I've had guys, especially I'll run into a bigger guy, you know, and he's like, yeah, you know, I play pretty big, you know, pretty heavy, pretty heavy <laughs> headed. And I was like, I understand that. And I set it up and I have lots of times just recently I had a guy and I set it up. And I said, listen, I probably left this lower than what you what you're used to, but play it a little bit and see what you think. And he came right back and he said, you know, I think it's probably going to be a little low, but I'm going to live with it for a day or two gets back with me then and he says, you know what? This is great. This is perfect. And what it's done, it's helped him to get better technique because he's not fighting and battling that high action. Because when you raise that action high and everything's big, you're just going to hit harder and fight harder. Where if you can get it down at a, at a better feeling action, it calms everything down and you can relax more and play, which helps your technique too you know so uh, to me it all goes hand in hand you know if it's whether it's a guitar or banjo man or whatever it is if that action is set at a good thing then your technique can be better and in, in turn you can have better tone and better feel and stuff when you're playing the instrument how did you learn all of this stuff i mean obviously you learned some stuff when you're working at gibson but did you did you were you doing like some luthier work pre-Gibson before you got working there? Um, I mean, I always messed around with stuff myself, but, you know, I started started at Gibson in like eight, 1982. You know, I was uh, 20, 20 years old. So, uh, you know, I hadn't done much before that. And it was like, um, so I just worked with people and especially with Charlie, you know, I, I got, I did so many things and, and I always just listened. I, I can remember, being at the shop and walking around with Charlie and Steve Gilchrist and Steve would come in and hang out with Charlie and man, I didn't say nothing. I just watched them, listen to them, see what they said. And then the thing about the playability, that's, that's a lot of that's most of that's just from me. You know, I've, I've been playing out here for so many years and setting up stuff from Gibson to my own shop, to friends, to everything back forth. And it's like, I've just learned and watched what happens with people if, if you do this stuff and I've, I've told people before point blank, you know, like I said, with that guy, let me lower this down some. And then I've watched people play too. And they want their action down, like say Sierra Hall's action. And they're just, it's too low. They can't play it. And I was like, look, you're going to have to have it. You're going to, we're going to have to raise you up some. One of the things I try to do is, is hope is watch everybody that plays their instrument to know what their technique is so I can get an idea to what to do because, you know, you might think I want my action down at a, again, Sierra Hull, low, Chris <laughs> Thiele's, you know, that, that low kind of thing. But you have to, boy, when you're doing that, your technique has to be dead on perfect for that setup. Cause if you play too hard, you're, it's just not going to be, you're not going to hear it. 
And so, it, you know, I think for me, it's a lot of it's just been the trial and error and just working with a lot of different people and trial, trial and error on my part of what I used to do. You know, my action was higher. My, you know, it, it's just, I think there's nothing better than, than experience with it, you know, and, have I ever had a lot of that? <laughs> <laughs> I love watching those just off the bench videos too. And, you know, and now, and, and part of this is going to go um, to you because you're a great player. Um, your, oh. your tone is, is so round and big and your right hand technique looks so smooth and, and soft. You can make an Eastman sound like a Gilchrist when you play. And I think that's, <laughs> that's a combination though. I think that is, I'm, I'm guessing when that, some of those lower range instruments and I'm not talking bad about them. I mean, those are great start price instruments. If that's what you can afford, that's a good way to go. Mm-hmm. But I would imagine they don't sound that great pre-set up. But man, you play those things afterwards, and I'm like, <laughs> wow, what a! It really makes a huge difference that setup. Well, it does. I tell you, it, talking about Eastman's, and Kentucky's, and different, you know, some of the lower end stuff. It, most of those, a lot of them have plastic nuts. A lot of them, sometimes I don't know what the bridges are. They are black, and they put some kind of black on them, make them look like ebony, but they're not. You can take one of those little mandolins and put. Uh, First off, pretty much the frets on all of them are going to be unlevel, kind of sharp. Dress those frets, level those frets, crown them and dress them, get that perfectly set up, get that neck just right. Then get a good bone or pearl nut in it and a good um, quality ebony bridge on it. And bam, that's a huge difference right there. Then you get the setup right on it. And all of a sudden you've taken an instrument that was, you know, that somebody bought for a couple thousand dollars and wow, that sounds like that sounds as good as a Gibson, you know, well, it might not sound as good as a Gibson, but in compared to what it was, it it's, it's a huge difference. And, and it's just one of the things, you know, you think a bridge and a nut, well, that's a huge thing. That's, that's everything with, with a mandolin, especially little things on mandolins, neck tweaks, little things about fret levels that, make big differences you know it's um for me it's it's like I, f- I found out a long time ago that um there's a lot um to be said for how that neck is adjusted it's um you know sometimes you think that neck don't need adjusted but you adjust it just a little bit and all of a sudden the mandolin it, it it's almost like maybe that rod nut wasn't just as tight as it could be and all of a sudden everything gets tight and boy the mandolin all comes together and everything just gets tight and you know just it's and and sometimes it's like maybe i'll back that off a little bit again it's all and when i get a mandolin here i play it and i think okay you know i automatically know is whether it's an eastman or gilchrist it's like okay this mandolin this is really good for this mandolin or this mandolin should sound better and if I think it should sound better, I monkey around with it until I figure out a way to make it sound better. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of like, okay, if I do this or this or this, this is better. And, um, you know, that's why when I do repair, I don't like to have somebody come in the shop and, and just sit here and it's like, I like to get your instrument, give it to me, bring it in here. I don't keep anybody's stuff very long, but I love for it to sit here a few days after I get it done so I can play it. I have two benches. I've got the bench that gets done and the bench that I'm working on, the bench where it's done. One's laying there, it's finished. And um, I 
play on it every day and think, okay, I'm going to do this. And I, you know, make little tweaks, make little things. Then I put it in the case and, and write on the tickets complete and tell people they're, you know, I can send it back or they can pick it up kind of thing. So, and as far as the playability, <laughs> you know, I, that's with my right hand technique. It's one of the things I learned a long time ago is don't grip your pick too tight. Um, I had back to talking about competition days. I went through a phase when I was a teenager that I couldn't even get, you know, I'd have these ideas for, I'd have all these tunes worked up and stuff and I would have to quit way earlier than I wanted to because my right hand started cramping. And I was like, man, my thumb would be just up in my hand would start cramping so bad and I'd have to quit. And, um, I was just like gripping the pick too tight. And I, it was funny of all things. I was playing golf a lot back in my younger days, and I got this Jack Nicholas golf video, and he was talking about how when you swing your golf club, he said, "Okay, I'm going to drive this. You know, I'm going to drive this ball 350 yards." And he said, and "You walk up there and you tee that ball up, and he said, you grip it with that right hand, you grip it with that left hand, and your right hand's tight, your left hand's tight, your wrists are tight, your elbows are tight, your shoulders are tight, and then you know it showed him he looked like a a robot trying to turn with the golf club. And he's <laughs> like, "Be loose." He said, "Take a hold of that club." He said, "Just needs to relax in that right hand." And take a hold of that, you know, and that's, I thought, you know what, that's what I'm doing with my pick. And so if you grab that pick in your right hand and you, you squeeze that pick tight with your right hand, guess what? You're going to get tight through your wrist, through your elbow, through your neck. It's going to make you tight with your left hand. You're going to be tight all over because of that right hand grip. If you can loosen, if you can relax that right hand, let that pick sit in there and, and, and and just move it's almost like the pick needs to be able to for me anyway the pick needs to have movement in your hand almost like it's a little shock absorber just to where it's relaxed and moving that way that gets you better tone the tighter you grip that pick the more harsh the tone's going to get when you lighten that grip the tone can get prettier softer because it's not hitting that string so hard and um, that was a big huge thing for me from everything comes from starts with my right hand. If if my right hand is uh, relaxed and doing well, then the most of it, uh, the playing will be better. That's why um, I've heard myself play on stage and it's like, oh, I'm playing so hard and I know I'm not here. I can't hear very good today. And I'm, I'm playing hard and I'm gripping that pick hard, which makes it sound rougher, you know. But uh, of course, my off the bench videos, I always told my wife the other day, I said, I listen to those videos and think, man, I get done with a repair and I set my phone up and I say, just off the bench, and I start noodling around playing after I've been working on an instrument for all day. And I'm stiff and I'm like, sometimes I just remember that the mistakes are, you know, they, they don't cost you anymore. So <laughs> <laughs> I just piddle around and play whatever comes to mind and whatever tune might come in. It's like, did I play that tune on somebody else? It's like, ah, whatever. Just play on it. <laughs> <laughs> I um I love we've talked about the Graskills and, and new tradition, but I I also love your solo albums. The first one I had gotten was Nighthawk, which came out I think in twenty fourteen.
just immediately, like from the first track on, just blown away. And um, and then I discovered Mandolin Orchard, and when yeah. I found it, um, I actually found it at a UCD place, and on the back it had this note. Sam Bush sums this album up. Once in a while, a recording comes along that redefines mandolin instrumentals. With Mandolin Orchard, Dandy Roberts has succeeded on every level. I now have a new favorite CD and a favorite mandolin player. Coming from Sam Bush, who we just talked about how much you love Sam Bush. What a quote. Oh, I was, when, when he said that, I was absolutely blown away. I, when you just read it back to me, it's like, ah, oh, gives me cold chills, you know. And I have fortunately since then got to be good friends with Sam, you know, of course, through Gibson, working with him there on his mandolins and stuff. I got to, got to know him well. And, and it's just, you know, at that time, I really didn't know him very well at all and met him, you know, and, but, um, it's just, yeah, that, that album, that was something that I had tunes for many years and just been, I've always been, I write lots of instrumentals, always have. And, um, that was, you know, being able to get in the studio and do that first thing. And me and my buddy, Tony Ray, um, we've been playing together since he was at Gibson, you know, and he's just that guy that I just, his playing makes me want to play and it's just he's such a great guitar and banjo player and we got to work that stuff up and that's when i was there at gibson at opera mills we cut that at a buddy of mine's studio went over and wife played the bass and you know and tony played the guitar we had he played some banjo and and at that time charlie cushman was there with us so we just had a blast making that record and i listened to it and it's like there's something for me that's a little extra magical about it. Some of my first tunes I'd written that I've had for years, you know, with we were just, you know, guys in there. It was, just, it was on no label. I was doing it just for myself. And it was like I, I love that record. You know, I, I mean, I love Nighthawk, too, and this new one I've got. But um, that was uh, there's something for me that was a little magical about that one for me just because it was the first solo thing of mine, I guess, you know. I always wondered, New Gill Ramble, the the first track off of Nighthawk, was that because you had gotten a new gill? <laughs> it was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. rid of uh i had a lore a, tw a 1922 lore that i played for a few years and um i took two gilchrist when i let it go i took two gilchrist in on trade and uh one of the gills that i took in was a great man on they all are and um 
I just thought, I, I was writing that tune and had that man. I thought, I'll call this new Gil Ramble and get Ronnie McCurry to come and, and play on it with me, you know. And, and so both of our gills, the years weren't very far apart. So, and you can listen to the tones of those two mandolins on that song and they sound a lot alike. And uh, because the mandolins do sound a lot that way. With doing these repairs, are, did you ever get some where you're kind of like, hey, uh, do you want to uh, get rid of this mandolin? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, in fact, just just yesterday, I gave a guy a mandolin back. Um, there's a there's a fellow over in East Tennessee named Gene Horner. He's mainly known for building fiddles, and but he's built mandolins too. And this guy brought me a, a, one of his mandolins. I think it's from the late 70s had really never been played that frets were, you know, frets were shot. He wanted bigger frets. Anyway, I got finished with that mantle and got it restrung and I fell in love with it. I sit here and played and played and played on it, you know, and I, I took it back to him yesterday and I knew he didn't want to sell it or anything. And, and he was telling me about it. And, uh, he said, uh, I picked it up. I think he said he picked it up for two grand. And I said, you know what? Um, I'll give you money back right now. You won't have to fool with taking it home. <laughs> He's like, yeah, no, 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 better not. But yeah, sometimes you get to play them, you know, but I, that you think I, you know, I would love to play this mandolin or love to have this mandolin, but Lord knows I've, I've got, I, I tell you, I, my, the McClanahan mandolin that I'm playing now is just, uh, it's amazing. I, I Jonathan McClanahan is that's another thing, you know, hanging out with Charlie Darrington and getting to spend all those years with him was great. Well, now for the, about the last four years, I've been hanging out with, with Jonathan and he is one of the most knowledgeable people with wood that I've ever seen. It's, I mean, and it's a natural ability. It's like, he just knows how to take a piece of wood and make it do what it needs to do. And, um, I, you know, I get I, with, with this Trinity model I'm playing now, I, I built the rims and uh, did the curfing, did some early graduations, top and back, some things like that. But Jonathan did all the, you know, the major close, you know, dialing it all in. And I just, uh, you know, described to him what I wanted. I said, you know, I like the mids and the highs of my 22 lower. I like the low end in, in, in my master model. I'd like to get them both together. I'm I'm not a fan of of a mandolin that's too dark. Um, I, I you know I like them to have clarity all in. And man, when he was doing the final graduations to it, I was sitting there watching. He does it with in the white, does it after it's built, and he does it from the outside with the scraper and on the recurve, and listens to the tone of that as he's scraping it. And he likes to do it at night with he almost in the dark he's, he lights a little propane candle and sits there and, and so he can see the shadows of where he's doing the thing and I, I sit there and watched him do all that it was pretty stinking amazing and he looks up at me and says i think this is what you want and i said awesome well let's go with that and um man it was it was exactly exactly what i had in my head and you know just from what i described to him and where I, I so I'm having a blast working with him. I don't get to get up. I was getting up there a lot during COVID and stuff and hanging out and helping him because he was almost two years behind in building. Um, I mean, he's still probably a year, a good year out, but um, uh, getting ready to do a, an exciting thing with him. We're going to do an artist model, a Danny Roberts artist model. And, uh, and it's going to be, uh, it's, it's going to be fun. It's going to be a lot of a few different things from what he's done 
in the past and it's, it's exciting. I'm looking, looking forward to getting that out. It's only going to be four, four of them built. And, uh, so we're, uh, we're probably going to be starting out here in the next uh, few weeks. And wow, that's um, incredible. So, Congrats. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited about it. We're, and, uh, and I'm, I'm even, I'm very excited that it's going to be that, but I'm so excited that I get to be a part of it. You know, I'm, I'll be there helping build and help work on the stuff. And, um, that's one of the things that's, that's great with, uh, with my repair shop here. And I just got a small little shop in my house, but anything that's bigger that I need, you know, need to done. I've, I've got Jonathan. We, I can go up there to the shop if we need the bigger tools or stuff, you know, <laughs> and he's got it all. So, so we can uh, cover anything that needs to be done. And that's, it's just, I'm just, I'm loving life is right now being able to travel and play with the Graskles is, is so awesome. I love that. But, being able to have my own shop right here at the house, do what I want, how I want, and and just see people are happy with their instruments. It's like there's nothing better in the world. <laughs> I love that. Oh, that's so cool. That well, you've worked hard to get that too. This is a <laughs> you, you can hear yeah, that it, in, this, it, in this interview. You a lot of years and all of it, you know. And it does definitely doesn't. But you know, anything that's that's good and, and it's you got to work for it. Nothing comes to you. It's, you know, my, my daughter, she's a, an excellent singer and, and player and sings with Sister Sadie and she got all this stuff coming. And, and I've told her before, I said, you know, one thing about it, you know, you, they're not going to come here to the house and get you. You got to go out there and, and get it. You got to go be seen. You got to be heard and, and you got to, you know, work on your craft. That's what you do while you're at the house. You work on your craft, whether it's singing, playing, repairing, building, you get that. And then when you get out in the public, that's when you your work starts to pay off. What type of uh, strings and picks do you prefer? I've been using blue chip picks ever since before he was uh, <laughs> a blue chip pick company. He, <laughs> he, he came up to me one day at a festival. Um, Jamie Johnson, our singer, sold steel to him in his machine shop and uh, mentioned picks to Jamie. And Jamie said, well, you need to get with our man on player. He's the guy to talk to. And he showed up at a festival and opened up his hand with a hand of those brown picks and was like hey try out so i got a couple of them and took them to the bus and man later that afternoon i actually tried them and i fell in love with them so he makes a pick it's a little little different shape for me he's made since since day one and it's a and it's a 55 it's kind of a a playoff of a teardrop it's a, with, a, with a bubble edge off of a teardrop and uh, um strings i use uh i the last for the last four yeah, about four years now, I've been using strings called Apex, um, a company that uh, our salesman from Gibson turned me on to. He, he left Gibson too, but was our salesman back when I was over production there. And um, he wanted me to try them, and I tried them out. And, man, they're a great string. Um, not many people are using them right now. I'm actually putting them on all my repairs, and most everybody wants to know what they are and ends up getting with the company and, and reordering some strings. They're a, they're a little different um, gauge instead of them being, you know, most medium gauges are the, the uh, 11, 15, 26, 40. And these are 11, 15, 25, 41. And uh, so I don't really notice any difference in that um, D string, but that G string being a 41, I like it being just that little bit heavier. Because I've never been a fan of the heavier E and A strings and the, um, you know, a little bit heavier string, and so they they feel great to me. They're wound a little tighter, 
So they have a bit of a um, coated string feel, but they're not coated. So they, they last well. I, I like them real well. They've been, they've been working out good for me. Yeah, what material mm-hmm. are they? They're phosphor bronze. Oh, wow, cool. I've, I, yeah. I've not, I've, I think I've heard the name, I guess, somewhere, but I've never really checked them out. That's interesting. I have to do some research on that. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. It's they, you know, they're a big guitar and bass string company, but he got into mandolin strings um, uh, several years ago and just never could get anything open. And I think I'm the only guy. And so uh, since I started putting them on repairs and stuff, it's it's starting to open the doors for him. I think a little more on on the strings. So. And now you played you played with Mike. When you play live, yes, always. Yeah. yeah. When when we were with Dolly, I had a, a man on with a pickup because in in those arenas and when you're playing that bigger stuff, you got to plug in or you can't be heard, you know. But um, but yeah, we always play on mics, and and you know, I I don't. We have done ear in ears and talked about setting up the mics where for us, I guess the Grascals were old school guys. We found out it just works for best for us to just go and what the festivals have, we use. <laughs> if, it's a, if it's a 57, if it's whatever they have. And it seems like a lot of times if you don't set up a bunch of stuff and tear up a bunch of stuff down and have to try to redo the sound, it goes quicker and easier. They, they're already set up and it, it works well for us. So, you know, I think if you've got a, a good instrument, uh, you know, any mic, if, as long as they'll just turn it up, <laughs> you you know it'll it'll come through all right right do you have a preference in the studio um and i should mention you you've got a new release coming out here in in the future you're trying to figure out with this music industry the best way to approach it it kind of sounded like before we we talked with digital and physical and but you've got three great singles out in the newest one uh my brown eyed darling which is a family affair It is. My wife singing that and daughter singing harmony. And, <laughs> yeah, so, and she, my da- wife played the bass on all of it. And, um, so we, uh, definitely have that. I'm just excited about that. But, um, but as far as in the studio, I've got a, an old, uh, Norman KM 84 that I've, that's been the main mic on everything I've recorded for, um, goodness, probably close to, 20 years oh cool you know yeah. so it's uh they'll some i mean every engineer most of the time they uh put two mics on you um the secondary mic sometimes varies um depending but always the main mic on my recording is is my 84 and it i like the tone of it i some of them um i've i've tried other you know our studios got several that we record at mount home have they've got 84s and they don't seem quite as warm sounding as mine. Mine seems to have the warmth with the the great mids and highs. And so mine's always, that's what I, you'll hear on most everything you hear me record is that mic. Nice. All right. Well, I got two more questions for you here, Danny. And the uh, the first one I ask every player, if you only had 10 minutes a day 
to play mandolin, what would you work on to get better or recommend working on to get better? Technique. That's, that's for me. It's like, yeah. Um, one of the things I tell all my students and stuff, it's like, and you, if, whether you're working on a lick or you're working on a tune or whatever it is, slow it down, get the, get the technique to where you can play that clean and make every note counts. Um, you know, don't throw away any notes. Be sure that when, if, if you're, you know, I, I, I'm a big advocate of, a uh, uh, using a metronome and set it at a slower speed and get that, whatever you're playing to where you can nail that and then bring the speed up to where it's the speed it needs to be to where you're playing each note cleanly and the way it needs to be played. Because, you know, a lot of people, it's like, oh, I, I learned this lick and they'll just play over it. And it's like, okay, I heard three three notes really well out of the last, you know, six or eight notes that you played. And a lot of it was muted and wasn't nailed. I'm, for me, uh, it's it's that being sure that your technique is, is down to where you can play and make everything coherent. <laughs> <laughs> and then the final question I have and you're not a beer drinker, so I always like to ask, do you have a favorite fiddle tune to play? Is there one that you pick up when you're doing repairs that comes to your fingers? Yeah, I, you know, for ever, forever I've played Lime Rock. Oh my gosh, I love that. It, it's just, it's a good, it's a nice workout for me. And it's like, you know, and one of those tunes that I have always just kind of kept in my head, but it's always a good warm up for me. And I've been, I've been playing through that tune and I'll probably play a little bit of that on pretty much every instrument that I repair, but pretty much every time I get my mandolin out, I play a little of that tune. Yeah. My favorite version is, uh, um, Bobby Osborne's off that Bobby and his man or Bobby and his mandolin album, uh, rest of soul. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. I was, um, at his, uh, service yesterday. He was such a great guy and meant so much to the Graskels. You know, he, of course with, uh, Smith and Eldridge, they spent 25 years, between them with the Osborne brothers. And when we started the Graskles, Bobby actually went out with us a lot, played shows and, you know, would come up during the set and set in and sing with the guys and play. So I got to do, he was great at playing twins. We got to play a lot of stuff together and he would twin. He loved fiddle tunes and stuff. And he was just a great guy. I'm going to miss him. Well, man, thank you so much for doing this. Where's the best place for everybody to find you if they want to set up, if they want to maybe take lessons? What's the best way to get a hold of you? Probably just Facebook. You know, just go to Danny Roberts Music or Danny Roberts. I got two Facebooks. That's probably 95% of everybody gets me through there. <laughs> Perfect. Man, it has been an absolute pleasure talking with you, Danny. I um I got I got to get up and check that shop out next time I'm up in the uh the Nashville area. How how far are you outside of Nashville? Oh, about 30 miles. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I get up there a couple times a year. I'd love to to stop by and check out the shop and 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 say hello. Yes, sir. Give me a yell. You got <laughs> it, man. Thank you, Danny. Thank you. All right. Great guy, Danny Roberts there. Go over to his website. I got links down below. Pick up Nighthawk. Pick up Mandolin Orchard. Pick them all up. Check out the Graskels there on the road. You know what? Let's, uh, let's send this podcast out with the uh, little Lime Rock from Bobby Osborne since we just talked about that. Everybody have yourselves a fantastic weekend. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. <laughs>